All right, three, two, one, we on. Jason Sargis, welcome to the Hive Podcast. How are you, Brian? Good to be here. Yeah, I've actually never spoken to you before. <laughs> no, no, we haven't. We've been in the same circles. We've come across some of the same people, and I think some of the same uh, trials and tribulations of the scene. So, big yeah, day. my boy Hector told us that a, a conversation with us would be a good thing. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. That's what yeah. I'm told. So, where are you located? Uh, right now, I'm in Long Island. I'm in Huntington. Okay, you've bounced around a little bit from what I was gathering. I think you were in Philly for a while, you were in Vegas for a while, now you're out in Long Island. Yep, that's it. So where'd you get your start? Um, uh, I started doing some jiu-jitsu when I was at uh, West Virginia University. I wrestled at WVU for a couple years. Um, you know, pretty much a glorified walk-on, but I got some good experience there. And then I started doing some jiu-jitsu and some boxing, and then uh, I ended up in Philadelphia and uh, took some of that experience and opened my own gym. What was, that, what, was, what was that gym? That was Brazen Boxing and MMA in Philadelphia. Did you make gear under that name? Because I've seen that name with gear too. Uh, a lot of t-shirts, a lot of things like that. Um, there's another Brazen, I think, in New Jersey. Uh, okay. They're a good uh, submission grappling school in Ogie. They do some good stuff. They got some, some good coaches and some good competitors. Nice. So you ended up in Philly. How long were you there? I was in Philadelphia for about seven years. Okay. How'd you like Philly? Uh, probably the worst place I've ever lived, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell us how you really feel about it? I think the best part about Philadelphia is leaving Philadelphia, I think, if, uh, <laughs> if you want me to be honest. Okay. Great, great food, great culture, um, uh, some pretty shitty people. Yeah. So it's just it's a little bit too too abrupt and aggressive for me you know I've, what do you mean uh, by abrupt and aggressive like what does that mean uh so, so let's take the the fight scene there is ultra competitive i get that that's good i think that's that's great for building talented fighters but at the same time um so if do you really the, okay i gotta throw something out there though sure. i i hear where you're going on that but at the same time i know philly too and I think Philly is a self-protective community in a lot of ways. And I don't think that actually builds the better athletes. And I think the record shows it. I mean, we've had some fighters come out of Philly, but out of a metropolitan city with as many people practicing as they do, they have a very small percentage of successful athletes out there. I think that's perfectly stated, right? I think that's, I couldn't say that any better. I mean, my biggest issue I've had along the whole way is when I see promotions, organizations, athletic commissions, whatever. Once I see somebody protecting somebody because they sell tickets or they want to protect a brand or a name instead of developing the athletes, we've always found ourselves in a shortage. I mean, how many times do we have to hear? I mean, I'm not shitting on anyone from Ohio, but how many times do we have to say, oh, he's got an Ohio record? You know, the guy who comes in, he's got yeah. 30 wins, but he's never fought anybody. You know, that kind of thing. Like, I, I, You know, if you really want to develop true talent, you have to test it. You, you absolutely do, and I think that's, that's the problem. You can develop uh, winning fighters that aren't necessarily very good fighters. And I think that's the problem that you see in Philadelphia is that you know, there is a need to develop guys, even on the amateur level, which my problem with amateur mixed martial arts is that there is no true amateur scene. It is a, a very money-driven, a very profit-driven scene as opposed to a developmental scene. 
college wrestling, high school wrestling, amateur wrestling at the at the uh, post collegiate level, whether it's wrestling in the world tournament or the Olympics. Um, you don't get to pick and choose as an amateur who you compete against. Not in high school, not in college, uh, not in the Olympics. Same thing with boxing. You sign up for that for Golden Gloves. Who you pull in the tournament is who you pull. You don't get to pick and choose to get to ten and zero and tell everybody on your social media that that you're the best in the area. And then yeah, you, but it's back. money. It's money though. It all comes down to money. When you have scholastic sports that have educational systems that are funneling money in to develop these sports, you know, who benefits is always the thing. Like who benefits in scholastic sports is always the schools. The athletes benefit because they get the experience, but they've got the financial infrastructure in place to develop them. The problem with combat sports is we don't have that. I mean, kickboxing, even boxing, boxing's amateur system is not producing in the United States in particular. I mean, we're not producing a huge field of talent. I mean, a lot of guys go through the amateur system and they're actually woefully unprepared for pro because the styles are so different because you go from a point style to a knockout style. Then when you come to MMA, I talk about this quite a bit, that this is probably the most accessible sport you'll ever be in. I mean, you can't go into a gym and ask Tom Brady to have a catch with you. No, you but, can't. <laughs> but you can walk into a local MMA school and you could actually do drills with a current UFC roster athlete. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. You, it's one of the few sports where you don't have to, have to actually be a good athlete to become a professional athlete. No. Uh, and I, and, and that, that concerns me a bit. Because why don't we just go to the fraternities and find the most popular kid and make him a shitty amateur fighter, but put him, uh, put him as the co-main event on most of your cards because he sells some tickets. And that's sort of what you're seeing. I, I understand both sides of it. I understand from creating real talent it has to be tested in certain ways. I mean, I had a problem with my one my athlete, Carl Roberson, who, you know, we're going to UFC 224 in a couple days. Uh, we had a problem. We really didn't sell tickets, so we couldn't get fights. And that was a problem for us. Carl was clearly the best guy around, but nobody wanted to fight him. And then no promoter wanted to use him because they couldn't make money off of him. And I understand from a promoter perspective, their job is not to develop the talent. Their job is to you know, make money through their promotion. And I get that. Uh, but then, you know, yeah, there is, there's a balance that has to be found somewhere. I don't know if it can be because quite honestly, without having uh, a system where those finances are going to funnel in and the promoters don't have to worry as much about the tickets because they're going to be there. If the money's going to be there, you know what I mean? It's, it's tough. It's really a hard, it's a hard riddle. I mean, even with the UFC, there's no, there is no set blueprint how to get there. There's no set blueprint how to behave once you're there it really comes down to you have to be able to develop a persona that acquires an audience and then you've got to be able to back that up consistently so it really is sports and entertainment that's what it that's what it's become but my my biggest concern with it is the luck of the draw you know you have some very very good athletes if the dana white contender series isn't out there um does does carl get picked up right yeah, that was, and again, for us, the beauty of his career, it's the proof of athleticism and it's a it's proof of, you know, results because we got a phone call one day and it was three days later, we hopped on a plane and went to France and fought Jerome LeBanner from nowhere. I mean, literally, Carl had no professional kickboxing bouts and went and fought Jerome LeBanner and he did beat him. We got screwed on a really funky decision, but anybody watched it knows we won the fight. I did. That was in Nice, France, right? 
Yes. I was going to, I had a fighter that was going to take that fight, but he was a mess, just a mess of a human being. <laughs> and it, and it fell through. And that's why we got it. You, you guys dropped him like on, right? Twice. It, yeah. It, it was One like, time dropped him, didn't get a count. They dropped him. They basically picked him up, slapped him around, threw some water on him and said, go. And then dropped him, and I counted it off, and I counted as slow as I possibly could, and it was twenty three count. Yeah. yeah, but that's all right. I mean, whatever. But what I'm saying is, like for him, he was ready and available. puts on a show, gets a glory contract. No experience fighting guys with crazy amounts of fights. You know, fights Jacoby does well, loses that fight, but still it was good. Then he fights Michael Mayer. We had a. There was a rehydration issue on that one and basically wasn't himself. But still, he fought Mike Lemaire and he got through the fight. And then his bicep goes. But in the meantime, he's developing this resume and literally no one wants to touch him because he's doing real well with no experience. And then he comes back off surgery. The right people see him at the right time. And we got the right management who put together a couple of the right things and it leads. But, you know, now he's, I believe, 6-0 and... and and five of those are first round finishes. So without selling tickets, without playing the game, he was able, because of his results, because of his abilities, he was able to give himself the opportunity. But it's such, it's, that story doesn't happen that often anymore. No, it doesn't. And if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there like a two year period, like after the Wilcox fight that he didn't fight for a while? Well, no, well. I mean, Kate Fury was mad at us because Wilcox, the rumor was Wilcox won that fight. He was going to the UFC and Carl armbarred him. Yeah. Like Carl, the kickboxer armbars him. And Wilcox, he disappeared. He he disappears and Kate Fury blackballs us. Then Arius was at Nicotone's gym and for some reason Carl was on a tear one day and he literally dropped three guys in a row who all had fights coming up and one guy had a title fight and they were there to film this guy and Carl dropped him and he had to end practice because Carl dropped him so bad <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay, um, I have a guy you should call that can help you guys get some fights and that's how we hooked up with Brian Hamper from Sucker Punch, which was the best decision we ever made. Going with Sucker Punch, they are an advocate for us in every regards. They took us from scrapping it out to actually having a career available. And so I, I have nothing but praise for them and what they've done. And they really know how to navigate the waters. And having a partner like that really is just, it's been an invaluable tool. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah. And, and it's hard. It's hard. Like trying to find the right management team is tough. We get approached by a lot of people and I'm very skeptical. I've been doing this a long time and I've seen them all come around and, you know, a lot of guys promise you the world, get you to sign. The beauty with Sucker Punch was they were like, look, you want to go, go. I'm not holding you to anything. Like if we get something for you, we, we get a piece of it. That's it. Like we just want you to be successful because your success is our, our success. And it just, Brian was really... He was chill. He he really understood, and I I was apprehensive. Two fights into the deal with him, I was like, "All right, they actually are backing up everything they said. I'm comfortable." And you know, it's led. We have a very good relationship, and they you know we're we're doing a lot of stuff together now. But it's hard to find that. I have so many guys that have horror stories about managers, and horror stories about coaches that are trying to be managers, and oh, absolutely. there's just so many horror stories. Period out there. And that's the difficulty in navigating those waters, right? You would think that, also because promoters are becoming something of managers of these fighters, and there's definitely a conflict there. And I get it that you want you want 
your guys from your promotion to do well. But if you bring in someone from the outside and they win and they're a legit talent, to blackball them or to turn a blind eye to them is violating the integrity of actual sport. Of course. So, and I understand that the entertainment is, is value is important. But I tell you what, I, um, I watched, I'm not even going to name the, the promotion, but I watched their main event or their co-main event with a, an undefeated fighter. Um, I know, well, a fighter with one loss fighting a guy with a losing record. And I know you wanted him to be your champion. That's fine. You bring in a guy, and the losing, the losing fight, the fighter with the losing record wasn't even coming off a win. He was coming off a loss, and he gets beaten a minute. Yep. That's, that's not sport, and that's not entertainment. It's neither. Yeah, well that's a paycheck. That's just that, a paycheck. That's exactly, and that's currying good favor with a, a fighter and a school that sells some tickets. And hey, that's fine. That's your deal. So that day, I quit helping that promotion. I won't do it. I won't do it. The thing, the, so for me as a coach, I struggle quite a bit, and it, Hector knows my my battles with this, and that's why he thought you know you and I could have good conversations because he knows you're like minded as me with this. Is the thing is as a coach, your gym's your gym is how you make your living. Sure, how you teach, whatever you make your living through this. You make your living off your athletes' commissions and stuff as well, but you you don't make a, a living riding talent to promote your brand. You make your living, hopefully, if you're an actual coach, by developing talent. So that they do well and you get the secondary and you know, you get all the other benefits of being a part of that if you do it right. But if you falsely develop the idea of talent, when it gets exposed, it just pops that bubble and you look like an asshole. It, yeah, that's exactly it. But then there's this this uh, this disconnect that even when that when that exposure comes. There's always some sort of reason, right? There's always some sort of excuse or some 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 back pocket excuse as to why you lost, whether it was a bad weight cut or uh, the promotion sucks or the the referee suck. And then there is that cognitive dis dissonance from that cult like mentality to excuse that poor performance, rather than questioning what it is we're doing to develop these fighters. And developing talent, like you said, is key. That yep. talent development. Wins are a byproduct of developing that talent. You don't seek the 10 worst guys in the region, beat them, and say you're 10-0 and 0 and think you're the fucking man. That's not how that works. Well, I just had a, I had a conversation with a guy yesterday who just got offered a fight. And he's somebody I work with. He trains with me. He trains with other people as well. And he's been saying for a year, well, I'm going to be in the UFC. I'm going to be in the UFC. I'm going to be in the UFC. And then they offer him a fight. And he goes, oh, that guy's too hard. And I said, dude. Are you really the best or are you just saying it? Like if you're the best and you're afraid of a regional circuit guy, how do you think you're going to be top whatever in a big show? You've got to go out there and you've got to prove it. You've got to shut the fuck up and you got to get in there and you got to you got to beat this guy. You got to prove it to yourself and you got to prove it to the world that you're ready. You can't just keep saying it and saying it and saying it and then back down. It it and again that comes from those other influences where you have these people that around you that are looking out for their brands and not you. And it's just talking the talk, walking the walk to a degree, but never taking the ultimate risk because you have too many people are afraid of your failure becoming their failure and all this weird shit. It's a total mindfuck. This is a crazy business. And I, I, I say this constantly. You can look at this. You can take a finite approach or an infinite approach. The finite approach is the prescription for failure. You can't 
go into it like you have to win every single aspect of every engagement all the time. You have to do today what's gonna ensure that you're gonna be able to do this forever, which means you have to accept the fact that there's gonna be highs and there's gonna be lows and you wanna be up more than you're gonna be down. I mean, I literally came off of a stretch about a year ago. I ended a stretch. We didn't win a, we didn't win a fight for like a year and a half. And everybody was like, Brian sucks. His gym sucks. He's terrible. I was like, whatever. You know, you put the blinders on, you, you, you keep your head down, you just keep doing what you're doing. And then we go on a tear. And then, oh, he's just lucky. He's got ath- good athletes and That's it. whatever. It's like, so when I'm up, you talk shit. When I'm down, you talk shit. So basically everyone's going to talk shit. So just don't give a shit what anybody says and just keep doing what you're doing. And don't worry about it. And understand that you're going to have a period where for whatever reason, Shit's just not working. And then it'll come back together again, and then it won't, and then it will. And it's just the nature of the business. And it's a, it's a crazy nature. That, I think that might be the thing that is the most taxing on me mentally. And that mental taxation creates a physical taxation. And it, oh, it God, starts, yes. It starts to wear me out. If this were a true meritocracy, like just take, uh, just take Carl. Like once you beat Michael Wilcox, shouldn't you, like if this were some sort of, uh, some sort of video game, shouldn't you like... It should have been a boss battle next. Yeah, right? <laughs> don't you inherit that? Don't you, don't you get that? And it, yeah. That's just not the way it is. And no. to me, that defies all logic and rationality. It really, really does. Because if we're looking at true competition, like if you want to be the best in the area, you've got to beat the best in the area. But you said it before. Oh, no, no, I want to keep my record clean in case I get picked up by the UFC. If you're a UFC talent, you should be running like a buzzsaw through all these fucking local guys. Yep. And you're not. And then these local guys that are pretty good, nothing develops mediocrity like being pretty good. You get a guy who's 5-0 and and another guy who's 5-0, and and they're in the same weight class, and then they want to train together. And I say, why do you want to train with that guy? Why don't you, you, you should want to beat that guy. And if you've rubbed elbows with him two or three times and you, you did a jiu-jitsu tournament and you, then you, he came to your school twice, he's not your training partner. He may be someone you have to go through eventually. I get the benefit of cultivating those relationships, but if you're cultivating those relationships in a way to avoid those challenges in the future by saying that there is some sort of loose affiliation, that's a problem too. Honestly, I don't, you know, that's, it's funny you brought that up. I fight with this constantly. The One of the main reasons I stay independent and the guys I work with me, hey, Corey Anderson and Carl at one point we're at 205. Carl fought on the Contender Series at 205. Corey's a 205er. Corey Anderson and Carl are each other's main sparring partner, main training partner. They had an agreement. They said, look, we understand that if there's something important on the line and they say we have to fight and the money's right and it's a title shot or something, fuck it, we're fighting. My guys understand that you could be the best friends in the world, but when it comes to the, to the fights, that's business. I mean, if you have to fight your best friend because one of you is going to get the shot that's what you got to do like this is the this is the commitment that you make now i see individuals make those relationships but my i see it more than anything it's the networks that try and pull these guys in to eliminate the competition absolutely and so the fighters are being groomed to think a particular way because the powers that be in their mind are telling them, look, do this, do that. Oh, bring this guy. He'll be good for you. 
but they're really like, yeah, he'll not, he's not going to be a good trading partner for you. It's just taking another guy off the board. I mean, we got in trouble where our management team threw out like, hey, why doesn't Carl fight this guy? And, and it was like, wait a minute. We just sparred with him on Tuesday. They're going to flip the fuck out. And then the next thing I know, I've got like my phone's like blowing up with all the people from the network going, yo, dude, did you guys? And I'm like, no, no, no. It was a mistake. Relax. Relax. But at the same time, we're also like, well, if there was more implications involved, neither side should be upset about that. It's like, okay, one of them's going to get the shot that they deserve and make the money that they need to make. So you got to, there's that respect for the proximity. But at the same time, if there is something on the line, sometimes, you know, people have to be men about this and go to work. Absolutely. I think you make a good point about the network, kind of like the network overseers um, having that influence. And it's just, I mean, for lack of a better word, you're bringing more, you want to bring as many members into the cult as possible. Yeah. And that's, that's what it is. It is this group think it is, um, uh, if it's us versus them, but us is all encompassing, like who do you compete against? Yeah, you know, you keep bringing in the like the mediocre guys from Ohio, or you try to bring in the random guy from Florida. But I think he submitted Bullcox too, right? <laughs> so you try, to, and then then you, you don't offer. Then they, they become your champion, and you don't bring them in for a title defense. Like I mean, how how often do you do that before that it gets exposed? And they do get exposed, and thank God that again. You've got this cognitive dissonance that says, oh, you know, as illogical as this may sound and as contrary as I've always been to the opposing side, um, I'm going to say it's okay when my fighter does it or when it happens to my guy, so long as it benefits me. And that's a problem. That lack of, I guess, the lack of true competition and the lack of principle-driven decision-making by the, by the powers that be. And that might be why I've always been such an outlier um, in this in this game. I'm considered to be a pain in the ass pretty much by everybody. And the funny part about it is, is that I honestly, I have no fuck you in me. Like, I'm not sitting here like, fuck this guy, fuck that guy, fuck that network. There's one or two people that I really don't like. I'm not going to name names. They know who they are. Go fuck yourselves. But uh, the main thing for me is like, I care about the athletes. I care about the individual success. And I look at in terms of this. I say when they're 20 years from now, when these guys are in their 40s or their 50s, depending upon what point of their career we're working together, I want them to look back and I want them to feel good about the things that we did. However it went, I want them to say we did everything we could with the tools that we had to achieve the highest level of success possible. And we got to where we got or we didn't but we did it as best we could. I look at it that way all the time. And that's why I talk shit against other people at times because I'm like, yo, this person's looking out for the short-term benefit of themselves, not for you. You should consider this path. And then I get called a troublemaker because I'm telling guys, look, no matter what network you're a part of, you're the only person that's actually going to go out there and bleed. You're the only person that's going to go out there and get the brain trauma and get the stitches and, you know, the injuries. And you're the only person making the living off of this completely. Like there's a lot more factors with stress on you than them. They're fighting for reputation. You're fighting for your life. So go fight for your life as best you can. Fuck the rest of it for that time in there and then navigate the waters respectfully, but always understand you really have to be your own team when you're an athlete like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, again, that's perfectly stated. You know, there is a, there's a critical path to success in this, to su success in this sport. Um, in anything though, the, the, the one thing you could, that 
Two things piss me off. One, people want us to not be human. They expect us to go against how we operate as humans in every other aspect of our life when it comes to the martial culture. Then the second part of it is that pseudo family bullshit. Cause I'm, I'm like, yo motherfucker, don't act like this shit's family because when they stop paying you and you lock the door on them, what happened to family? Because with my dad, if like, I don't pay my dad, he's still my fucking father. Like, don't act like this is family. This is familiar, but don't act like this is family. Absolutely. Right. And that's it. That's again, it's all a form of social control because if you decide to go against the group, think and exercise any independent thought then you betrayed the family. You're not loyal. Loyal, loyalty, loyalty. It's like, ah, if you're using that as a, as a term for social control, to try to control my behavior, then, then there is, there's nothing more than that cult mentality. And that's what I see with some of these, especially in the, in the jiu-jitsu culture. Hey, we open mat, come everybody, come everybody, but we don't really want our guys to go to any other open mats. Yeah. So it's like you're inviting everybody to come to you, but I see, and this is, I mean, I'll, say, I'll come right out and say it, Daniel Gracie did it. He invited everybody in Philadelphia to cross train, come to their grand opening. And it, I thought, I'm like, all right, this is good. This is good. You know, pretty open. And then he puts a post that said, except for Semper, and this is about four weeks later, except for Semper Fi, who's now our brother, uh, we don't cross train with any other schools. Well, that's after you purged all those schools of their talent and they came to yours and, you know, you that's great. You put together a really strong team, but you now you have an all-star team that you poached from other, other teams as opposed to a developmental organization. People are going to say, oh, you're jealous because a bunch of your guys went. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> you know what, I, that. I, I have, uh, again, I have to have a dual opinion about it because, A, it's like all fair in love and war and... I really don't look. Kurt Pellegrino came back from Florida and op, you know he opened up a mile away from me, early two thousands, and really negatively impacted my business. And at that time, I was like this motherfucker. And then over time, I really come to understand that there's two parts to it. You know, okay, he did some things to go after my students, which was not cool. Then the other side of it was I was talking shit against the attack instead of effectively working with my people to counter what he was selling. So if he was coming in as this jujitsu whiz and that's what he was pulling everybody away, I didn't up my game to combat that. I just said, fuck him. And everyone else was like, well, fuck you. I want to learn jujitsu from him. And because I closed the door, I didn't get a lot of those people back. The funny part about it was I ended up being Kurt's coach for his last two fights, and I trained his whole fight team eventually. So I got over it, and we bridged the gap. But in the beginning, he really financially hurt me, and it was my own inappropriate response to it that fucked it all up. You know, so it, it no, I don't think anyone really steals your students. I think people offer an opportunity, and they take it, and our response to it you know, can combat that. So does it piss me off? Absolutely. But at the same time, I got to point the finger at myself when I lose students to a competitor. I don't even think they're competitors. I got to say, if I lose somebody to somebody else that's doing something else, whatever, it, it's me, them, 
whatever, who gives a shit? I still got to pay the bills and train my guys and do whatever. And if they're going to build a record off of shit I already started, whatever, I'm going to be here a long time. I've been doing this 20 years now. All the guys that came coming after me, most of them are out of business. Most of the gyms that were bothering me 10 years ago, I mean, there's like one or two left and they're not doing real good. So no, the I, longevity I think, part, I win. I, I think that's a healthy level of accountability. And there's a lot of things you said there that I agree with. Where it starts to get a little bit tricky is, um, you know, um, when there is, so with, and look, I don't have anything against Daniel Gracie anymore. That That's in the past. If I saw him, I'd shake his hand. He'd probably swing at me, but whatever. <laughs> um, I've had... I've had problems with Paul Felder, who was at C- with Daniel Gracie and at CFFC, and then I've had Paul Felder, which no one knows this, come to my home in Las Vegas when he was suffering some head trauma um, and was going to get some MRI, uh, an MRI and some work done uh, in Las Vegas. We spoke, and then uh, you know we, we hashed some things out. And it was really, really good, and I decided it was time to put a lot of that stuff, like my grudge with, uh, with Daniel Gracie, behind me. The only problem was, I, after Paul left, like everyone wanted his visit on on the down low. Like they didn't want to discuss it. They didn't want it brought up. And not only is that a little bit hurtful, but it's just a fucking asshole thing to do. Like you don't don't yeah. go to someone's someone's home and then try to keep it all all hush hush. And then when you refer to me online, refer to me as this guy you know, not as your former coach or a guy that you you sought out for at least some direction whenever your your head was busted up. And I think that that kind of that kind of influence and pressure from within the network becomes problematic because it's 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 more than twofold, threefold, fourfold. Um, there's so many factors with that. Uh, when the network is able to have that kind of influence, and it's not always positive influence, then you know you get you can visit me in Las Vegas, but you're not you're not going to be able to visit me past that once you fuck me over. And if you're going to need whether it's just to clear your head or to get to get some perspective or true advice about who you should fight next, if if you think that there's legitimate uh, positives in that, then I think you'd be you'd be remiss to not try to do that again. So uh, when people leave a school and or when they left Brazen and they went to Daniel Gracie's, it wasn't just uh, if I'm a better coach. I could have kept those guys. That's part of it, like not in terms of how good of a coach I was at developing fighters, but you know, I probably could have kept a, a more level head and been a little bit less intense when I needed to be. Uh, I needed to coddle a little more, but I feel like I coddled too much. Then I decided it was time to really put my foot down, and when I did, I probably overdid it. So I needed to learn a little more balance. But the problem with that, with whenever they decided to leave and go to, to Daniel Gracie School, is like I, th- I believe at the time it was partially owned by CFFC. Now you have the yeah, promotion I, owning the school. It'd be like if the NFL owned the Patriots. Like that's not cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I, I remember there was weird stuff I heard about that stuff too. I don't know what's true and not true, but you know that this this shit happens all the time. I mean the the head doctor for the state of New Jersey that. You know, it's the person who decides if you're healthy enough to continue trains at Matt Sarah School. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you talking about Sherry? I know Sherry. Yeah. So if you're trying, if you're fighting a Matt Sarah guy, do you have to think twice if you get cut and they get cut? Who's gonna, who's gonna, they're gonna stop the fight for? Yeah, well, I will say this: she was one of the doctors that uh, dealt with the um, Marab, yeah, Shealy, and uh, that didn't that didn't work out in his favor. So, no, I and I've actually I like her. 
and I think she's honest. But I, but there are Conf- what, potential there conflicts, are potential conflicts, whether you mean them or not. It's the it's the human condition, right? Hey, I know Kurt Pellegrino lost a split decision to who's that roided out monster from ATT. Um, Gleason Tebow. Yeah, yeah. He fought Gleason Tebow, lost a split decision, and I know one of the judges scored against him because he had a personal grudge against him from other stuff. And I'm like, there's so many weird conflicts because a lot of these judges, these officials, they train, they have connections with other people, they're part of networks. I mean, Tiger Shulman has a guy, Sin Cage side at every fight. And if you have a problem with Tiger Shulman, I find it really hard that this guy is going to be honest with you about it. You know, it's just the nature of the beast with the pressure again with some of these networks with what they they do yeah i think a healthy discussion about it and bringing it to the forefront is is good you know i'm not saying that there's some some conspiracy that we're going to expose but at least having that conversation Look, i understand the benefit of having a coach who has a strong relationship with what was at the time cffc was the premier uh promotion in the region Maybe maybe they they still I don't know with everything with Alliance and everything else. I understand that, and maybe if it would have played in, played out differently, and I would have been the recipient of the benefit of those kinds of relationships. Might I be? Might I have a different stance on it? I mean, maybe. Hey man, I have right now. I had a coach. Uh, one of his guys left his gym, came to me, and said, "Hey, I want to train with you." And I called up the coach and I said, "Hey." You know, this dude stopped by. He's looking to train with me. And the at first, it was like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. And then later, comes back. You know what? I'm really not comfortable with training a guy that I train like that. I, you know, I feel like, you know, you're kind of taking food off my table. I don't feel like he would know you if it wasn't for me. And I was like, look, here's the deal. I don't agree with what you're saying, but I respect the relationship that we have. And I respect the different things that you've done for guys in my room that have helped us out. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say no to training this guy. But the minute you don't call me, if one of my guys comes to you, all, the gloves are off. Yeah. Like, and then, then just. We- Be cool with me about it and be honest. And what you ask me to do, you be prepared to do in return. We will be okay. But the minute that respect goes away, fuck you. I'm doing what I got to do. And that's the problem is that the, the, the people on their side will focus on just your, your response of fuck you. And say you're trying to control who fights where and uh, or who trains where. And, uh, you know, but Again, there's context behind that, and it needs to look, be looked into a little bit more deeply. If not, if you try to be, and look, I tried it. I tried to have the uh, the open door policy and have open borders, and everyone come in and come out and do whatever. And I, you you end up losing out that way if you don't at least pay attention and have conversations in relationships with the other teams and other trainers. Um, and also, I don't think the the athlete develops quite as well. You get too many cooks in the kitchen, not a singular voice. Um, people stepping on each other's work, and you see it all the time. I see real good, real like world-class strength and conditioning coaches who have no idea what the fighter did the day before or what they're going to do tomorrow that put them through some of these grueling workouts. And I'm watching my guy spar. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? You're all thumbs today. And then you realize that their central nervous system is so taxed because yep. they did deadlifts till failure, and then did another coach put them through a sprint routine. Like, well, oh. a lot of it, besides, you know, again – the, the the ego and attitude aspect of this sport becomes difficult too because a lot of the coaches won't communicate because everybody wants to be the alpha in the coach scenario 
and no one wants to defer to anybody else. I've been there. Trust me, man. I'm so a, so I'm a, I, I do not, I don't work well for somebody. I work well with somebody. So if like I get stuck in what I feel is like a secondary role and somebody's dictating stuff to me, it's difficult. But if I feel, if we create a team where we're working together, that's different. I can bend better there. That's just my personality. So uh, the one you just, I run into this thing where, you know, you'll get one person who's like, I know everything. And I'm like, you actually don't know shit. So you need to step back. Like you're good at what this one thing, just be good at that. And let's coordinate and let's stop fighting over monopolizing somebody's time because you want to be the number one guy. So it, it, it just, it's, it's tough, man. And the strength and conditioning side of it, a lot of these guys that do strength and conditioning are not making a lot of money doing it. So they're doing their work with the athletes because they're helping themselves and their businesses. But the coordination's not there because they just don't give a shit. Yeah, they don't. And if they can work with them three times a week, they can charge them more when maybe two times a week given their current workload. And it isn't just how much how much, how much much time are you putting into training. Uh, how What are your work hours? When do you get to sleep? When are you training? When are you eating? Yep. Um, you know, do you have Do you have a couple kids? Are they keeping you up late at night? Uh, there's other things that go into it and if you're not paying attention on a micro level then you can do more harm than good and it's not always more is better sometimes less is better if you think more is better go run a a marathon before you spar and tell me how fucking well you do yeah so you know it it needs to be tempered and specified to the individual and to the athlete and that is putting in a lot of time for not that much reward um, especially as on the strength and conditioning side of things, because you're not their primary. You know, you're an adjunct uh, to the system. But I think if there were a great, if there was greater communication, you would see you know, a, a greater yield in terms of results. But the the one thing I, I I've had to do, which I, before I used to just hold up in my own gym and just do my own thing, and if guys went other places, they went other places, whatever. But now I make the trips, I go and spend time in the other gyms. I figure out what the lingo is. I really look at what the relationships are. I find out what the potholes are in the roadmap and I address them as early as possible and just try and come up with a flow that's going to work. And I'm very straightforward and very open and I am not afraid of anybody walking away from the situation because they're not comfortable with it. Because ultimately, if they're not comfortable with it, it's the wrong thing for them to be doing anyway. And I just, look, my my quick backstory on it is uh, just about two years ago, I walked away from the business because I was just sick of it. I looked at the community and I said, there's no one in this community that I, I don't want to have anything they have. I don't want to live like they live. I'm just, there's there's nothing in this that I'm okay with. And I literally walked away Carl was out on injury, had a bicep reconstruction. I'm like basically alone in the wilderness. And I was like, fuck this. I'm really not interested anymore. And I walked away. And then a couple months later, Carl comes back. We start working. And I was like, you know what? Maybe you and I will just do work. And then that was going well. And then weird shit just started to turn and better. Just different people started walking through the door in the gym. And I was enjoying training them. And then all of a sudden, the business was starting to work better. Carl starting to get somewhere. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm getting pulled back in. And I made the conscious decision that if I come back to this, I'm going to do it on my terms, my way, and I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck in the best way possible. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, it wasn't like, fuck you. It was like, I really don't give a fuck about all that clutter and crap 
that was getting in the way and not letting me actually focus on the important aspects of this and the stuff I like to do and the stuff I love and I'm passionate about, whatever. And I just made a real choice. I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this again, but I'm going to do it real different. And I'm not bending in compromising principle. I'll compromise on decisions to get the right result, but I'm not compromising principle and I'm not putting anything above anything except the athlete. And I'm just going to do my thing. And I've had more people come to us. We've had more success. Um, I definitely scare the shit out of a lot of other trainers around because I talk very frank and I really don't care. And it just is what it is, man. We've just, I'm, I'm comfortable. And for me, I mean, I, I have a wife and I have a son and I have another son coming. And the one thing I say is, if you're going to ask of my time, you've got to ask of it in a way that I can go back and justify it to my wife. Like I have to be able to go home and say, yeah, I put this time in because this is the value of it. So if our relationship doesn't have value, I just can't do it anymore. So I don't waste my time on athletes. I know there's nothing there for it. I would love to be able to train everyone but I really can only train people that we're going to have a mutually beneficial situation. Well, that's that's sort of where I am. Where you were two years ago is, is sort of where I am now. Um, I, for the first time ever, I don't really enjoy the sport, and that should that should sound a little odd. Like the the most enjoyment I've had in the last year and a half of of coaching was my wife going over to D Lion Boxing, training with now Golden Gloves champion. Uh, Sarah Thomas and helping her prep for for the gloves and she won it and her coach coach Herman was great they brought us in they welcomed us in my, my wife is incredibly heavy-handed and she pushes a pace and I try to get her to slow down but you know she's she's 40 years old uh, I think she no she just turned 41 I gotta, I gotta get that straight <laughs> um, she wouldn't be upset if you went younger. Yeah, right? <laughs> to me, she's still in her 20s, the way she pushes a pace. And she'll do that out of shape to give a good look. Uh, it, was, it was cooperative training, even though they were going hard, in an attempt to prepare uh, Sarah for the Golden Gloves. Not an attempt to beat her, though it was competitive and it was, the sparring was pretty fun and aggressive. But seeing Sarah win meant a lot to me because I, I felt like, Jessica, even if it was a minor role, had a role, and there was a, a contributing factor. I, I love, uh, he's my neighbor, and, and one of my fighters, Matt Favola, he got the call up to the UFC, but that should have been my biggest moment in coaching, but I felt like I was, I was a third wheel. I felt more like an equipment manager holding his gear on his way to the gym, or to the, to the ring, or to the cage, than I, than I really felt a coach whenever I felt like a coach was necessary to help him be dialed in and focus a little more, not to be caught up in the moment. And I, I, I bypassed that role because I felt like, hey, there's Ray Longo, who's the godfather of, of mixed martial arts, and he's certainly a very, very skilled, very competent coach. And then his longtime coach of, I think, seven years in Matt Arroyo, who's a UFC vet. So I didn't, I didn't feel like I contributed enough. And I felt like one, if I if I had the balls to speak up a little more, I don't think we we, we get starched in a minute. I think we, I think we perform a little bit better. I think we put them on the mat and we win. I think we put them on the mat if we come in with a more focused approach. Um, yeah, but you know what though, you're going through that struggle that a lot of us go through is figuring out where the best position for us is, and 
look, I had to play second fiddle when I realized I wasn't a second fiddle. I was like, fuck, that's not my role. There are certain situations where I can be second fiddle because I understand the value of it and we all are working together and it's a it's a better situation that way. There are times that I'm like, oh no, I feel good here. And then there are other times where I'm like, no, if you put me in that role, it's just not going to work because I don't, I don't have confidence in that person who's supposed to be above me. Like it's not there. So I, I know myself enough to know when to say, you know what, I'm respectively going to take a step out on this one or not. And again, that's the not giving a fuck part. Yeah. Like I really do have the ability to say, oh, you're going to go, you're going to go to the UFC and whatever, da, 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 da with this guy. And I'm like, no, that's okay. That's good. Uh, you guys go. I don't need to go there. I go there anyway, and I don't need this one. Like, I would rather go there in the right situation than make an ass of myself and be uncomfortable. I don't want to be sitting there with a bad taste in my mouth after going, fuck, if only. Like, I can't do that to myself anymore. And that's where I just, it's not even balls or confidence. It's really the not giving a fuck part. <laughs> it's seriously just, just eject the shit that I just know is not going to work. Stay on in the lane where I know I'm going to be all right and just ride that. Because I get guys all the time. I'm like, they're like, you know, well, if you work with this guy, you'll get access to that guy. And I'm like, no, I just don't want to. I'm good. I'm really okay. I could kiss everybody's ass, get into every award thing in the world and be on everybody's Instagram feed with a thumbs up. But there's no satisfaction in that for me because I know it's all bullshit. There's I'm just a little bit grounded. That, I'm grounded differently. That's where I am. I'm yeah. incredibly like-minded in that regard. It does nothing for me. It rings hollow. I feel nothing. So just don't do that shit anymore. And I, I can't. That's why. So I don't work at um, at Longo's anymore um, because I, I uh, one, it was, the commute was rough and I'm starting a grad program. Those are my pri my primaries, right? I'm, I'm getting a master's of science in integrated marketing um, because at some point my wife's going to want me to make a real living. <laughs> uh, so that's the problem. And I just had shoulder replacement surgery. So... Um, that sucks. Yeah, recovering from that is has been a little bit it's been a little bit rough. You know, I probably put a uh you know, a smile behind it a little more than uh than, than, than the truth be told it's been a little bit more taxing on me than than I'm admitting. So, um but if I felt like I was necessary, I feel like I I would be um a value add. But they have they have their team set you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to mess that up. Well, then you got to find the right sitch. I think honestly, man, the more it's funny. Uh, how old are you? 42. Okay. I'm 44. Most of the guys that come on this tend to be in similar situations. We're, we're 40 something year old guys that we did it right for a bit. We did it wrong for a bit. And we're kind of at that crossroads where it's like, okay, I can eject all the bullshit and stop being young and start being a man about this and start living towards my own principles completely or not. And it's really crazy. It's just the evolution of life. We all end up in these things and martial art culture, like fight culture in particular, we give up a, a lot of our early years to this business. So we actually mature on a social level differently. Most of us get married later, have kids later. I mean, I've got my second kid coming. I'm fucking 44. You know, it's yeah. like, it is what it is. Yeah. Thank you. But like we give up our twenties to the business and then we come back around. And so where some people in a white collar world may come to this realization at 35, we tend to come to it at 45. As long as we come to it, that's the only thing that matters. But I find for all of us, when you hit that turning point, 
there's that disgust moment where you're like, I just don't want to fucking do this anymore. And then you have a weird thing. I have a friend who got into a motorcycle accident. Me, I just said, fuck it. And I walked. Uh, you know, you have shoulder reconstruction, so you physically can't do it. So you've got time to think about it. Another buddy of mine had an addiction issue and had to go away for a while. Like, But we all come out of it and we know who we are. And the next step is the most important step that we all make. So... I really, you have so much experience and you definitely, I mean, for you to have the ability, even in this conversation to say, you know what? I think I fucked up there. Just having that ability, you know, your next step's going to be more honest and you're going to be good. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's all I can do is take the information and the data that's been, that's been presented to me over the, the course of however many years in the sport and try to make a better decision moving forward. At least and if anybody can't build the bridge back that you may have burned, Fuck them. You don't need that relationship anyway. Because I, 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 that's the, the one biggie here is that like this second life aspect of this, if you're judging me by who I was 10 years ago instead of who I am today, go fuck yourself because you're expecting me to take you as you are right now and I'm supposed to appreciate your evolution, but I'm not allowed to. No, 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 no. That's not uh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And if they could see inside my head behind the curtain, like... I don't know. People still think that I have a grudge against Paul Felder. There are some things that have happened between he and I that I don't think anyone else knows that, that bother me. But I'll tell you, and this is the truth. You can polygraph me. I don't give a shit. I have never in my heart rooted against him. I've always wanted him to win. The, bit, the most troubling thing was for me, like out of my mouth, I kept saying how much I wanted Ally Quinta to beat Paul. But every time I thought about it, I got the opposite feeling. I just did. You know, one fighter that is is in uh, Longo and Weidman, and he, I, I think I Quinta might be the, the nicest person who has such a different persona when it comes to the fight game. Um, and then there's there's Felder that everyone thinks is such a nice guy, but he's really a hardened, just... Uh, he's a tough dude. I've met him a few times. He's, he's a, a tough dude. He's a grizzled individual that comes off like the boy next door, but he's not really. But when it comes time to who I'm rooting for, it is someone that I feel like I've had an impression on and left a little bit of an imprint. Uh, it's hard to pull away from that. And when you see him, like he is a, whether or not anyone wants to admit it, he is somewhat of a byproduct of the time he spent, six fights, six and oh, five knockouts with Jason Sargas. Five and oh as a pro, out wrestling Corey Bleak and who was a national champion. He is a byproduct, at least somewhat, of the time we spent together. So as much as people think that, that I have ever rooted against him, and I, I've tried. Like, I went into the fight, and in a second it's the bell rings. Every time they get an exchange and something happens and Paul's looking good, my heart starts to beat. And it's with that, that, that happy anxiousness and that excitability as opposed to, shit, man, I really hope he loses. It's the, I wish I could switch that around. <laughs> I've been there, man. There, there are key people that I've worked with that have moved on or we just didn't see eye to eye on certain things where I felt I got used and I want, I want to hate them. I want to see them fail, but I can't yeah. like, it's just because again, a lot of the other factors we talked about, I can't, I really can't hate on guys Honestly, I will verbally hate on a guy who gives into the system, but it's really hard for me to honestly hate him because part of that is that it's almost a, a jealousy. They're like, well, why can't the fucking system be there for me too? But, I, but I'm not part of the system, so it's not going to be there for me because I'm not one of the people that's willing to give in to that. Like I still, I, I just don't. And they do because they see the value for themselves 
And if that's in a moment of weakness or if that's a moment of insight, who the fuck am I to judge? Let it be what it's going to be. And, you know, it's tough, but it's it's the nature, man. We as a coach, you get you get shit on more than you get praise if you ever get praise. And you really have to be passionate about it and you have to put yourself into it to find any kind of success with these people. And, you know, it, it, it in a lot of ways, it's just a thankless job. But, you know, if it's your passion, you do it. And if you if you want to continue to do it, you got to find the right angle for it. You know, it is what it is. Yeah, and that's what I'm going to be looking for moving forward is, is to find that correct angle and something that because uh, the passion for me, it's not what it what it once was. It just isn't. You know, the funny thing is the I I I had a fighter who was retired and he was struggling because he couldn't figure out the value of his career. And we had a conversation and I was like, look, champions, the longevity of a champ is not what you did in the ring, but it's afterwards. How do you translate everything you did to be successful to create value today? And. As a coach, it's the same thing. So you may be going to get a different degree, but it's the experience you've had doing this crazy world that if you can translate that back into other things, you know, you become unstoppable because if you're able to find success in any way in this crazy business, you have the tools to and the foundation to be successful in anything you put your mind to. Uh, again, that's the third time I think I couldn't have said it any better. All right. If you can, if you can navigate the muddy waters or the the rough waters of mixed martial arts, if you can find some clarity in the muddy waters of of the fight game, then the the other world, the really real world outside of the fight game, becomes a lot easier to uh, to navigate. It's like a, a New Yorker moving in California. Why do New Yorkers tend to be successful on the West Coast? Because they speak a little faster. They're a little bit more aggressive. You know, they, they play by different rules. And I find a lot of times when you go from this world and you go, if you're not one of the entitled ones, because I do see people that hop out of MMA that have been, that have an entitled mentality. If you feel like the world owes you anything because of what you've done, you're fucked. But yeah. if you can learn the lessons of the business and apply that to other shit, you're good. I laugh. I say this one a lot. I walk into white collar meetings, no matter how bad it goes, I still have the, I still can say to myself, I could choke out every motherfucker in that room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I say too. Like for a one-armed guy, I can probably take this whole fucking room. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I even, I'm such an asshole. I say that about everybody who walks through my door, period. I mean, I have some really high caliber athletes. I'm like, I'll still fucking go toe to toe. With you. I'll take your best shit and, and <laughs> smile at you. Like, it's just, it's the grittiness that, comes with the game if you play it a certain way i have a full contact karate background too so i'm even a little bit crazier that way because we i was just you know i got beat on for a very long time bare knuckle which uh and in a japanese cultured system so you know the the endurance factor is, is a little bit different in my mentality a lot of guys laugh at carl and i because they don't understand why we do what we do as hard as we do and the way our mentality is sometimes and i'm like it's a karate thing man you just Oh yeah! If, if you weren't part of it, you don't get it. Well, I'm I'm from a wrestling mindset. Right? I wrestled when and, I was seven. Yeah. Right? So I, you're you're a hard worker. Right. So I won a junior Olympic t state title when I was twelve. I had my first shoulder surgery when I was sixteen. I've had seven since. So so pushing through wrestling through pain, all that all that stuff, that's that's second nature to me. It doesn't yeah. occur to me to do it any other way. And whenever you take that that kind of wrestling mentality, and I think was it was it Ben Askren who was just on the Joe Rogan podcast who said one of these days you're going to see 
or maybe what it will take to have a, the great next coach is to have a guy run in his MMA school like a college wrestling program. I did that. I did that. And in theory, I developed some really good fighters very, very quickly. Anthony Terrell, Johnson Jiu, Paul Felder, Evan Shimolescu, who was a, I think a three and four fighter, ended up going two and one with a, fr- a win over Frank Buenafuente, who ended up winning the Ring of Combat title 145. So we should tell you the development of some of these guys. But the problem is, like, there's a reason why the college experience is only five years with one yep. year medical redshirt. You don't want that forever. Like, it's too, it's too grueling, too taxing, too. I mean, at, at some point, and also though, when you're young, and you're in that mentality, you need a leader. Eventually, yes. you have to become a leader, and that's what mixed martial arts is supposed to develop. Yeah, right. And when you do that, and you know, maybe that's what happened to most of the guys in my program is that I think I taught them how to lead. And at that point, uh, maybe it's time to graduate away from the Jason Sardis experience, I guess. You know? And you know, the man, I went through that. And the hardest part about the, the big learning hurdle on that one is 10 years ago when they felt like the graduation part, I was like, who the fuck are you to leave? Look what I did for you. Where now I try and cultivate a relationship so they know they don't leave, they just expand us. So they take me with them, do their own thing, and we do it together. That's that's the goal now. So when I see talent now, I'm like, okay, so you can take Killer B wherever you want, and you can do your own thing, but that pipeline never closes between us we and whatever you do i benefit from whatever i do you benefit from and we just expand and that that was a huge growing point and because it's a a, it goes back to i don't like to work for someone i like to work with someone yeah and i have to be that guy with my people too they can't work for me they have to work with me when they get to that point where they need independence well i think that's probably my biggest regret then you know, is that the, the fighters that have left me, Johnson Juju, uh, Evan Shimoleski, Tom Backman, who was a great fight mind, and he was a 3-1 pro, um, these guys left, and we no longer have any any relationship. And you know, if I could change that, I would. If I could go back, and I've tried. I've reached out to them. I'm not sure what I did to them to make them so goddamn mad still. But Or if it's the, hey, Jason Sargis is a cancer within the, the, the network. Let's keep him <laughs> frozen out. That's fine. Um, but if I, if I could do it over again, I would have protected some of those relationships a little more so that there, there could be, um, I know, call it a continuation of what we started because they're, all of them are coaching now or they're either all coaching or they're or Felders in the UFC. Right? So I've developed some pretty good guys and I taught them not how to fight but how to get good at fighting, not just how to win. You fight shitty guys if you want to win. You get get in bed with a promoter. You want to win. They'll bring in shitheads from all fifty states to for you to be. Well, them. it's not winning. It's being a winner. Yeah, that's it. I taught them how to how to get good at fighting so that they could be a winner. Yeah, um, yeah. You know what though? It, it, what's the the saying? You know, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 we we we're all young and arrogant, especially in the egos and the testosterone and all the bullshit that we come across in this. If you didn't do it wrong you don't have the opportunity to do it that much better. You're going to be mediocre. If you were if you were good the whole time, you know, you're going to be okay and someone's going to pass you by. But you do have the ability to if you have the ability to be if you have the humility, I should say, not the ability, but if you have the humility 
to recognize the mistakes and then have the drive to do it again, man, the second time around, third time around, fourth time around, it's that much better. So I, I, I say anybody who wants to quit, don't, t- don't quit. Take a timeout. Take a deep breath. Watch some fights. Call some old people up. You know, you'll find out if you really want to do this or not and if you were really, you know, bred for this business. And if you were, you'll come back and, uh, you know, it's that audacity and humility thing. You have to have the audacity to go for it, but you have to have the humility to say, yeah, I fucked up. Man, this podcast has been a phenomenal thing for me. My my second or third episode, I brought in a fighter that I know I completely destroyed, completely wrecked. It's Jason Teitelbaum was the best athlete. He was my original Carl, best fighter I ever had. I fucked it up every way you could possibly fuck it up. And I brought him on and we talked about it. And he got it and he got past it. I mean, he invited me to his wedding and I was like, fuck, I'm surprised he even called me. Wow. Like, uh-huh. I mean, okay. I really fucked this up. And we just, we talked it through and like, we both got it. It was like, we, I was a young coach. He was a young athlete. We both we're not really communicating well and I did I I was just way too arrogant to do it right and you know now it's not it's not a no harm no foul it's now it's like okay that's what we did but both of us are better for it he's a he's a world class uh, strength competitor now married good job you know whole nine yards and he attributes a lot of his success now to the fire in which you know, I, I, I burned him earlier and to come back around, we even have a second shot at this together now. And he's even come in and helped get rounds with some of the guys and shared his experience and different shit. So there's always that opportunity. You just have to create it. And I mean, for me, it was funny. I did a podcast cause I was just trying to, you know, create some interesting conversations and I was shocked at how deep they got and how, how much cool information I found out about people that I didn't realize. And talking to a guy like you today, it's, you know, I know Hector, he says, Hey, you two should talk. This has been a great conversation. Uh, it talks about the business in a way that not everybody comes on to talk about it. You know, I have a lot of surface conversations, but then they go a little deeper and, you know, have this kind of interaction. There's a ton of value in this. I appreciate it too. I really do. It gives me the opportunity and the insight, uh, to let me reflect and kind of you know, step away from my own expertise bias. You know, I see things through through Jason Sargas's eyes every second of every hour of every day. So <laughs> getting getting another perspective, even if it's just if it's just skewed slightly, it's uh, is a huge benefit to that. Yeah, man, the conversation is the most important thing, and that's why I've stayed independent because I'm not going to have anyone ever tell me what I can or cannot say or do because only through having the ability to have these conversations, to have these interactions, to get on the mat and challenge ourselves in different ways do we actually evolve and grow. It's not about protecting. It's about evolving. It's about actually getting better, not just you know, having marketing that says we're the best based on information from 20 years ago. I don't, I don't have a fucking trophy on my wall from anything past. I have nothing. I have one belt that I was really proud of that Carl and I earned sits on a shelf. The rest of the shit, there's photos on the wall that show our history, but man, it's like, what are we doing today? I could give a fuck about yesterday. Like, what are we doing right now? Yeah, that's, that's what, that's it. That's that's the space that needs to occupy my brain. Yeah, man. I, I look forward to you uh, healing up, continuing your education, taking a deep breath. And uh, I'm really curious to see where you go with this, because I know we didn't even get into a lot of the stuff, you know, you you I, I've been told by multiple people that when it comes to strength and conditioning, weight cutting, you know, just like some of that stuff, you're you, you're definitely 
one of the people that we need to speak to. I actually want to do a roundtable discussion about weight cutting soon. Okay. And I would like to have you come in for that. I have uh, our strength conditioning guy, Keith, and his girlfriend, Maria. They deal with a lot of my athletes on strength and conditioning, and they're constantly dealing with the challenges of weight cut. We've been going to the UFC PI with Carl, and that's been an invaluable tool for weight cutting. And there's just so much real-time data that we're getting from there. I forget the name. Lockhart. That's who Carl gets to work with yeah, out there. George. yeah. And he really knows his shit. And I mean, Carl, we were wondering why Carl couldn't make 185. And then he put him through this test. And we're like, yeah, you have 185 pounds of muscle. That's not taking in your skin, <laughs> your hair, and your bones. Like, that's why you can't make 185 without dying. And so they put him on a program. They're like, you you, you have to do these workouts. And then you have to eat the, this food to accommodate these workouts. And you've got to get your muscle mass down without you know, wrecking your body, you've got to actually burn it off the proper way, get yourself quicker, faster, stronger in the process. It was amazing. I mean, he came back from Vegas with a binder that was, okay, the next six weeks is how you live. Made 85. He didn't even have to go in the sauna for his first UFC fight to make 85. Well, that's that's why I preach like critical path methodology. There is there is a need to have a step-by-step -step approach. And yeah, there's certain, you can go, if, if this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do this. But you don't, you don't build the building before you build the foundation or put in the plumbing because then you got to rip out the you got to you got to rip everything out just to get access to the ground there is the more that science will take over the more that actual actual expertise as opposed to pseudo expertise and you know just, oh bro science i call it the bro science well, fuck the bro is. science they, man. they gloss over they do it they, all of a sudden everybody who's taken six months of muay thai is a muay thai coach it's like, no, you got a little bit of dirty wrestling with some slick elbows thrown in every once in a while, but I couldn't coach Muay Thai. I'd be a fraud, right? And I've been, yeah. I've been involved in the fight sports for, for a decade plus. But you have guys just kind of gloss over boxing. And now, oh, uh, well, we're going we're gonna to do this because it's boxing for MMA. It's like, Ugh. when you do that, and when you do something as dangerous as weight cutting, and you just kind of gloss over the science of it, and you don't really know it, you're going to get someone fucking killed or hurt. And, you know, the thing about that is, again, it's the arrogance of a lot of coaches that don't, that are afraid of the information because they feel if somebody attributes a positive to somebody else, it takes away from their control of the situation. Shit. I've sent Carl to you to uh, Vegas twice now to go to the PI to get run through their shit because I'm like yo you need that information I need that information for us to have the best camp we need to know what the fuck's going on he needs work on jujitsu okay great let's go like he's working with Dante Rivera I have no problem with that I was doing his strength and conditioning I was like look for me to be I don't have the time to give you that you need so now he goes to Bulldog, you know, strength and conditioning and freehold. We go to Nicotones for sparring. We do all, Carl does all his pad work with me. We do all of our strategy sessions together on this. We listen to the other voices, but I'm his main coach. I come up with a strategy. We do our thing, but he has a great relationship with Dante that gives him more strength and more info. He has a great relationship from Keith from, from Bulldog. More strength, more info. Has a great relationship with the PI. Healthier, happier, stronger, better. Like, you have to just let this stuff go. None of that delegitimizes me. I think on the flip side, because I have the ability to say, you know what? It's okay. Go to these places. I don't give a fuck. Like, yeah. Well, the, the, he, he's like, thank you for not making this difficult. Yeah. You know, well, the, he's like, wow, this is great. I appreciate it. 
And that's why we have a good relationship. And that's to the benefit of the fighter. The cure for cancer yeah. is going to be developed by a team of scientists, not some guy by himself who's like, fuck those guys. I don't want yeah. them sharing in on the credit. <laughs> that's, not, yeah. that's not how that's happening. There's gonna be- I even have, I let Carl go and spar at a place where I think the coach is a piece of shit, but I know there's some big lefties there and he's fighting a big lefty and I don't give a fuck. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to that place and and watch him spar because it's a little uncomfortable and I don't want to make Carl uncomfortable. Like, I'm not going to go. I would love to go and point out the inadequacies of what's going on there, but I'm not out of respect for Carl needs the work. I don't give a fuck. Let him go get the work. Because, <laughs> yep. like, you know what? It's going to be me and Corey Anderson in his corner when he knocks this motherfucker out next week. You know, like, that's my job. My job is to get him ready for that any way we have to. At the end of the day, again, the guy standing next to him is me, and the guy that's his coach is me, and the other guys absolutely are part of the team, but it's my fucking team, and it is what it is, but I've had the ability to take that deep breath and say, okay, other people have to be involved in this, and that was my choice with Carl, and we are all benefiting from it, and yes, they're doing work. But I made decisions that allowed that work to happen in a, in a less stress environment, and we all benefit. So even if I don't get credit for it, I know I did that, and I feel good about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, so, the smartest, healthiest perspective. I'm trying, man. I'm fucking trying. I, like <laughs> that, I'm telling you, it's a daily battle. I sound really evolved and good on here, but you should see my notes. <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to have to reach out to you offline so I can... Uh... <laughs> Talk some shit with me then. Yeah, but no, it's good, man. I'm really struggling through it because, you know, I have to. It's the only fight worth fighting is the one to do the right thing because the only excuse to do the right thing is it's the right fucking thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Look, I've got to... I'm going to have to hop off here because I have to get in for a training session. Jason, it has been a pleasure. I will have you back on because there's way more things to talk about. Uh, I, I I think we hit on some really interesting topics today, and this has been good for me. I hope it was good for you. Absolutely. Um, if there's anything you want to plug, let people know where they can find you. The floor is yours. All right. Um, I mean, I find me at, uh, I guess, I think I'm on Twitter. <laughs> uh, Jason Sargis somewhere. I'm not sure. I don't really tweet all that much. Um, I'm on Instagram at Jason Sargis. Uh, the name's not all that common, so I'm pretty easy to find. I want to thank... Uh, you know, I brought some guys up. Like I brought um, uh, Coach Ray Longo up. He, his tutelage in some of the information he gave me. If I had a chance to talk to him when I owned my gym in Philadelphia, and probably you too, Brian, I think those relationships that had, had soured um, probably would have been salvageable, right? So, you know, having spoken to some people that have given me some insight, I. I just want to say thanks in that, uh, you know, as, as I, I'm 42, but I'm still talking about continuing to mature. <laughs> but, hey, man, it's a lifelong process. Yeah. So I, it, I want to thank Ray Longo. I want to thank uh, Matt Frivola for giving me the option or the opportunity to coach him at the highest level of this sport. I want to thank Paul Felder. I do. Part of me wants to smack him and part of me wants to hug the fucking kid at the same time. <sighs> You know, he is, he was the guy who allowed me to, if you want a perfect human being to try out your, your fight philosophy for training and developing a fighter, he's who you use. He's a good athlete, but he's not a great athlete. So he's not, you know, he's not winning the high jump and he's not running a four flat, uh, 40, but he's an incredibly hard worker. He's tough. He's driven. He does what he's told. 
He's sort of an asshole when he spars, but he's incredibly coachable. So when you add all those things, and you add a rookie coach like Jason Sargas, and you get to try some things, and fear when he's performing isn't a factor. It's not a variable. Just following and adhering to a game plan. Embracing the grind that is wrestling uh, when he didn't have it when he first started. Like That kind of athlete helped make me a good coach. He was a hell of a template to, to try out some of my thoughts and theories and philosophies. And for him, you know, I want to say thank you to that because those guys come around once a generation. You know, to the other guys that uh, the relationships are no longer there, I'll take a second. Anthony Terrell, uh, Johnson Jeju, Evan Shmoleski, uh Tom Backman, Mike Backman, basically everyone I ever coached. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for whatever it's worth, guys, I, I, I want to move on. If it's an apology that's necessary for the third time, I apologize for my role in the souring of the relationship. And, uh, you know, ego is a, ego's a motherfucker. It's a hell of a thing. Yeah, man, it sure is. Sure is. But time's a beautiful thing because it lets us work it all out. So Absolutely. And that being said, I'll let you have uh, the rest of your day. Thanks, man. This is Brian Wright. You can find me at brianwright732.com, brianwright732 on Instagram and Twitter. You can find the gym, KillerBCSA at KillerBCSA.com, also KillerBCSA on Instagram and Twitter. The Hivecast, all 22 episodes are up at thehivecast.com. You can find us on uh, iTunes, Google Play, tune in. We're all over the place. So keep checking us out. Once again, thank you to Sucker Punch Entertainment for always supporting what we do and bringing us sponsors like MPH Nutrition, uh, the Thrive Sports Rehab guys. Uh, thank you for keeping all of us, including me, together and all that. So more shout outs to do, but time is short. So, guys, this is Brian Wright with Jason Sargis. The Hivecast is out. See you, Brian.